thank you for today. We thank you for the bright sunshine. We thank you for the good weather we've been having. We also thank you for the storms and the rain. Lord, we thank you for what they represent in our lives. That there will be storms and rain, but they're always for a purpose. In this world, their purpose is to help provide sustenance for plants, to help them grow. And in our lives, the rain and the storms also help us to make us grow, help us grow. Lord, we thank you for the times that try us, the times that stretch us, the times that force us to rely completely on you because we, we come out the other side stronger in your spirit. We thank you for your word that reveals so much to us about who you are, and yet it doesn't even begin to, to scratch the surface of who you are. Lord, we thank you that it gives us enough. It gives us enough about who you are, and it gives us enough about what your expectations and standards are for us. So Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have, that you would change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, Vox.com published an article by a writer named Michael Estrin. While currently a writer for the finance website Bankrate, we, a lot of us have heard of that website, a few years ago, Estrin found himself in the middle of an IRS tax scam that preyed on those who were behind on their taxes. While having earned a law degree and having had passed the bar exam to practice law, Estrin's dream was to be a writer. Not having much success as a writer, Estrin submitted his resume to a Craigslist ad for a company who was looking for a lawyer to help people get people out of tax debt. The company called Estrin in for an interview and wanted to hire him. Desperate, Estrin started the job and quickly realized what the company was doing. The company had hired a salesman who received a list of people in financial trouble that the company bought from a marketing company. The salesman then spent all day cold calling those on the list and promising to solve their tax problems for pennies on the dollar with their team of lawyers. While the program the salesman would push on those who seemed remotely interested was a legitimate program through the IRS called the Offer in Compromise program, those who applied for it rarely qualified for the threshold. Meanwhile, those who were interested gave this company their credit card information on the salesman's promise that Estrin and the other lawyer he worked with would fight for them. They would fight for them to get them qualified for this program through the IRS. While Estrin would fill out the paperwork on behalf of these clients, which by the way they could have done themselves, the company was billing these clients between $2,500 and $10,000 just for filling out this paperwork. In a quote from the article, Estrin wrote, the boss didn't explain how people mired in tax debt came up with that much money, I didn't ask. After a few months of working for this company, Estrin discovered that the IRS had rejected every single one of the offers he had filed with the IRS on behalf of his clients. Every single one after they paid this company thousands and thousands of dollars. His clients were now forced to fall back on the IRS's payment plan, the route that had always been open to them that they could have taken on their own. The only difference now was that they were now hoodwinked out of thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of dollars. 
This company scammed thousands of dollars from hardworking people who fell victim to their attractive promise of only paying pennies on the dollar for their back taxes. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul recognized that he was indebted to Jesus for his salvation and called to preach the gospel and knew that he must live his life in light of that because Jesus was someone who could always be trusted. We spent the majority of the second half of the, of the message last week looking at the clear scriptural evidence for the tithe principle continuing on into the New Testament and therefore continuing on as believers in Jesus today. The strongest piece of, uh, pieces of evidence for this in our passage last week were Paul referencing the Levitical tithe system as an appeal to his right for monetary support from the Corinthian church as a true apostle in chapter 9, verse 13. And then Jesus' extension of that to not just include the apostles, but anyone who has given their life to full-time ministry. The foundation of this appeal is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, when Paul says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, and you're getting spiritual reward from it, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And obviously the rhetorical answer is no, it's not. In carrying over the tithe principle from the Old Testament into the New Testament, we talked about what that entailed. In the Old Testament, the tithe, a transliteration of the Greek word tenth, or ten percent, was ten percent of the best of what each Israelite family grew or raised in an agrarian society. Since very few of us are farmers today, how does that now translate to us? Well, ten percent of the best of what we have, which would be, in today's terms, our gross paycheck, or whatever source of income we have before the government or anyone else dips their hand into it. We closed our message last week focusing on God's encouraging and exciting challenge to us in Malachi 3.10 when he says, bring the whole tithe, bring your whole 10% of the best of what you have into the storehouse so there may be food in my house and test me now in this. That's huge. Out of everything else that God says in Scripture, not to test him with. This is the only time in his word that says, test me. Try it. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And obviously, we, as we talked about this last week, I didn't say that that meant you were just going to get rich. You are going to be in prosperity. But what we saw was Paul telling the Corinthians that they'll have enough to be even more generous with. That not only if they gave their 10% of the best of what they had to the Lord's work through his church, they would have enough for everything else, their bills and everything else, every other one of their needs, and be even more generous to those in need. Why does God say, test me in this? Because he wants us to trust him with everything that he's given to us so much that he wants to surprise us with what he can and will do when we simply obey the tithe principle. When we both obey the tithe principle of giving the 10% of the gross amount that he's already given to us back to him for his work and above and beyond offerings to those in need, God's word tells us, and this is what I was getting at, and God will generously provide all you need. You don't have to worry about paying the rest of your bills. 
God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Test me now in this, God says. It's exciting. This isn't scary like we usually default to thinking. This is exciting because we are simply trusting God with what is already his to begin with and testing him to see what unexpected things he will do through our generosity. All throughout Paul's appeal section, he's given the evidence for him deserving this monetary support from the Corinthian church, but that he's purposely given that up. Many in the Corinthian church were using that against him. See, it was the, it was the rule that the apostles and all those in full-time ministry deserved this monetary support for their work in the gospel. But Paul specifically himself chose to give that up. And many of the Corinthian church were using that against him. That if he didn't just have a bunch of people throwing money at him and he was working like a common laborer, they didn't need to take him seriously. Or any of his apostolic instruction seriously. As we saw in the first part of this two-part mini-series, Paul laid out all the reasons why he was entitled to the same monetary support as the other apostles, but that he purposely gave up that right. And we're going to see his whole point as it connects back to chapter 8, even, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago. So the first point that we come to is the position. Once again, Paul is quite clear about his purpose. He laid out all the proof as to why he was entitled to the same monetary support as the rest of his contemporaries in full-time ministry, but he purposely did not take advantage of that biblical right for a very specific reason. At the beginning of this 1 Corinthians series, we saw how Paul, with the artisan skills of a leather and canvas worker, when he arrived in Corinth, found the local leather guild and went to work to support himself financially. Why? Well, every other traveling philosopher expected payment from those he spouted wise sayings to. And that was exactly Paul's point. Paul did not want any of the new people he would soon meet and share the gospel with in Corinth to think he was anything like these other traveling philosophers and want anything from them. He wanted no obstacles to them listening to his gospel message other than the gospel message itself. All Paul wanted the Corinthians to know and to see was that he was there to get nothing, only to give them something, and the best thing he could ever give them at that, the eternal hope of Jesus. Paul reiterates his entire point of working to support himself, not as something to be twisted around to make him inferior, but his original reason. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you didn't, that's all right. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. I want us all to see this. It's in the New Testament. You can look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor for help. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're picking up in verse 15. But I have used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done in my case. He's talking about the, the support for, for monetary support. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. And what is he talking about there? 
Again, while he had every biblical right to monetary support from the Corinthians, he gave that up. He purposely gave that up. And he did not want it misconstrued by any means for a second by anyone in the Corinthian church that he laid out all the evidence for his right to monetary support so that they would start giving it to him. He didn't want that to be misconstrued in any way either. That was the farthest from the whole reason to do it in the first place. As he says in verse 15, Paul went to work for himself when he first met them. So there were no obstacles to them listening to him, and he certainly doesn't want any obstacles still. In fact, he doesn't even want the chance of someone being able to accuse him with reason that Paul is now in it for the money. Someone could then turn around and insinuate that Paul's boast that he only lived for the gospel and wanted nothing from them in return, an empty one. That's what he's talking about in verse 15. Beyond that, Paul's appeal that he deserved the same rights as the other apostles was not even something he could boast about. He couldn't even boast about that. Verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Just like with everything else, that, his mission to preach the gospel, was even because of God's grace upon him. As with everything else. Paul's rights as an apostle were not because of himself or how great of an apostle he was. They were only given to him by Jesus' grace and mercy. And Paul is well aware of that. And he's not ashamed to declare that either. This was another big reason why the Corinthians didn't have the right to twist his purpose in not taking advantage of all of them against him nor take them from him because they had nothing to do with them or him, it had everything to do with Jesus and that he's the one who gave them. And here's what I mean. As one biblical scholar pointed out, others voluntarily follow Jesus. We know the famous four did, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Andrew heard Jesus speak, immediately believed in him as the Messiah, and followed him. Andrew went and told Peter they had found the Messiah, and Peter went to meet Jesus. After that, after the fishing miracle in Luke 5, Peter, James, and John left their entire fishing enterprise. And Luke 5.11 tells us, when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They did so voluntarily. You see, while the other apostles and those who followed Jesus voluntarily perhaps always had the temptation with them of feeling, you know, maybe a little proud of themselves. Look at everything I gave up to follow Jesus. They always walked around with the temptation to be a little proud of themselves. I'm not saying they were, but the temptation was always there. They always walked around with the, with the temptation of feeling a little bit of proud of themselves in those positions. But Paul did not even have that. Therefore, the Corinthians had nothing. His point is, the Corinthians have nothing that they can accuse him with. According to one biblical scholar, Paul saw himself as something like the prophet Jonah. Paul did not just have simple faith in Jesus that drew him to follow Jesus. What happened? Jesus had to literally knock him off his horse and blind him to get his attention. That's what happened with Paul. That wasn't something Paul was proud of or had anything to boast about, as he says here. 
Like Jonah, finding himself just vomited out of the big fish and getting a second chance to preach, as he outright says in verse 16, Paul was compelled to preach the gospel. He didn't do it voluntarily and therefore had any right to boast. He had to be physically flattened for him to do it. As such, his whole life was devoted to the sharing of the gospel. He didn't have a choice in his mind and heart. In fact, Paul says, woe is me if I don't do it. Paul saw himself as cursed if he didn't live his whole life for the promotion of the gospel. Since Jesus saved Paul from himself and a life headed only for destruction by literally seizing him from the direction he was heading in and throwing him to the ground, as such, Paul saw himself as indebted to Jesus for doing that for him and would live his entire life to preach the gospel out of gratitude for that. Paul further explains this relationship in verse 17. And he says, For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Whereas the other apostles... And other missionaries followed Jesus voluntarily based on their faith in him and wanting to carry out his work and were therefore financially supported by those they sowed spiritual things within. Paul saw himself as a completely different story. Yes, as he's laid out in all the verses we've covered so far in chapter 9, Paul had the same rights as his fellow apostles, especially the financial supported one. But like the other Christian liberties, he felt an intense feeling of undeservedness. Again, Paul felt a great indebtedness to Jesus and that everything he had could only be owed to Jesus' grace upon his life. Therefore, the difference that Paul saw between him and the other apostles is that they would be rewarded for taking on the Great Commission willingly. They answered a call that was extended to them. In Paul's case, though, he was, in a way, forced to take on the Great Commission unwillingly, in a way. In that way, Paul saw himself as a servant entrusted with his master's affairs as a steward, as he says in verse 17. He sees himself as a servant entrusted with his master's affairs and nothing more. That's what made the Corinthians' accusation about him working for a living, disqualifying him from apostleship, and his instruction, something to be ignored, so bitingly painful for Paul. Paul already knew that his calling was unique, in comparison to the other apostles, he already felt undeserving to be noted among the other apostles. He will tell the same people, the Corinthians, further on in the same letter, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Paul already knew how undeserving he was to be called to be an apostle. The fact that many in the Corinthian church were using that, were using something that Paul already felt undeserving of against him and questioning his apostolic authority over them is why Paul spent so much time proving that he did indeed have the same rights. However, as we see here, that doesn't mean that Paul necessarily felt 
like he deserved them, especially the monetary support right, and so in part he relinquished that right. Paul only saw himself, again, as nothing more than Jesus' servant handling his master's work the best he could. And he had nothing to boast about. Did Paul see any reward in his life serving the one he was eternally indebted to? Absolutely, of course. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right of the gospel. His reward is being able to present the gospel without the concern that some listening to him thought he was only doing it for the money. And as one biblical scholar pointed out, Paul saw his reward as seeing God work tremendously in those Paul ministered to. That was his reward. Paul will tell the Corinthians later, I have the highest confidence in you, and I take great pride in you, in what God is doing in you. You have greatly encouraged me and made me happy despite all our troubles. We, know, we already know the troubled relationship that Paul has had with the Corinthian church. But in spite of all of that, because he could see how God was in what ways God was moving and working in the Corinthians' hearts and lives, that that is where he derived his joy from. Highest confidence, taking great pride in them, and they greatly encouraged him and even made him happy. In everything that we've looked at, with what Paul has said to the Corinthians already, and all the rebuke he's given to them, all the way up to this point, that strikes us as a little strange, right? That they make him happy. But it's not because of them. It's because of everything that God is doing in them. So we talked about the position that, that, that Paul was in and that he saw himself as and felt undeserving of. And secondly, we'll look at the purpose. This is how Paul further lived out his life as a servant indebted to Jesus. This is how far he was willing to go as indebted to Jesus and living as his servant entrusted with the gospel. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. This is the first of four illustrations of how far he was willing to go so even more people would hear the treasured message of Jesus' gospel. As one biblical scholar pointed out, Paul was not literally saying he would sell himself into slavery as we've talked about was common in that time period. When we looked at this difficult topic a short while ago, we saw that Paul already told the Corinthians who were enslaved in an earthly position when they came to faith in Jesus, if you get a chance to be free, take it. That's not the way it's supposed to be. If you get a chance to be free, take it. Paul's actually getting at a couple of points here. With his, with his illustration. Firstly, when Paul has the chance to minister the gospel to those he comes across who were enslaved, he made it a point to not act in any way like a superior person than them. Even though Paul himself was free, he regarded every person, slave or free, as a fellow human, and if they were believers, his, his own brothers and sisters. We know he saw the runaway slave Onesimus as his spiritual brother, as recorded in the New Testament book of Philemon. 
Secondly, Paul is actually connecting this back to the topic he was addressing back in chapter 8. Anybody remember what we talked about in chapter 8 a couple weeks ago? That of those well-to-do Christians, those well-to-do Corinthians, giving up an aspect of their Christian dietary liberty of eating meat dedicated and sacrificed to idols and pagan deities at temple celebrations in order to prevent their weaker conscience brothers and sisters from also partaking and doing what they believed was sin. That's what Paul was discussing in chapter 8. In that connection, Paul is saying that even though he is spiritually free as a believer in Jesus, just like every other believer in Jesus, in comparison to the Mosaic Law's restrictions, he would voluntarily give up some of that liberty in order to minister to someone who couldn't spiritually handle seeing Paul use that liberty. Likewise, that segues perfectly into verse 20, to the Jews I became a Jew so that I might win Jews, to those who were under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. Similar to the illustration in the verse we just talked about, even though Paul, as a Christian, was not held to the same dietary restrictions as his fellow Jewish brothers, for the sake of the calling and gospel his master entrusted to him, remember, as he was his servant, Paul would follow aspects of the Mosaic law when he would be around Jewish people that he wanted to share the gospel with. That temporary relinquishing of his Christian liberty paled in comparison with showing his Jewish brothers and sisters the life-changing truth of who the Messiah really was. One of Paul's points is that the Corinthians should operate the same way and see their Christian liberty in the same light. Yes, they had every right to utilize their Christian liberty, but what was more important, them doing what they wanted to do and had every right to do or winning one more soul to Jesus? What was more important? Winning one more soul to Jesus. Amen? Thirdly, verse 21, to those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. The reference to those without law is obviously in connection with the pagan Gentiles who lived all around the church in Corinth and whose a large portion of that the church had recently come out of. Paul notes that he would live according to the customs of the surrounding Gentiles no matter how comfortable or uncomfortable his background would be with them. However, Paul is also quick to point out to them that he's not relinquishing the moral laws of God as recorded in the Mosaic Law. If it's not blatantly against God's word, we should look for opportunities to relate the truths of the gospel to those in the culture all around us. Let's translate that to our culture today. If it's not blatantly against God's word, we should look for opportunities to relate the truths of the gospel to those in the culture all around us today. We can't hide or run away from things that are outside of what we've been brought up with or what we're comfortable with. Relating the gospel to those all around us in this world and culture must be the precedent. 
Lastly, Paul comes in full circle in connection to the, to the discussion he brought up in chapter 8, again answering the questions the Corinthians apparently posed to him regarding meat sacrificed to idols. Paul has only addressed the public and obvious eating of it where there is no question to the meat's origin and pagan dedication. That public answer continues here, verse 22. To the weak I became weak so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. Well, it may have seemed like a disconnect between what Paul talks about in chapter 8 and the public consumption of meat dedicated and sacrificed to idols and his dis discussion about his relinquishing of the right to monetary support that Jesus bestowed upon him as an apostle are actually one and the same. It's actually the same point. Here it is. Just as Paul sacrificially relinquished a right that was rightfully and biblically his, that of receiving monetary support from the congregation in Corinth, those stronger conscienced believers who thought they could throw their Christian liberty in their more spiritually immature brothers and sisters' faces must also relinquish this right that, yes, technically was rightfully and biblically theirs. They must put brotherly love and church unity above their personal desires, especially when it came to them possibly leading a more spiritually immature brother or sister to knowingly sin. That's how it all connects. That's how chapter 9 connects with chapter 8. So we talked about the position, the purpose of why he gave up that right, and thirdly, the point, his whole point in this. In connection with himself as an illustration, Paul's overall point is this, verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. We'll get more into this verse next week or in a, in a couple of weeks. But for now, again, Paul does not see his life as his own to do with as he wants, especially in connection with his Christian liberty and apostolic rights. He is merely a servant. That's all he sees himself as, a servant indebted to Jesus for how Jesus broke into his life in a radical way to get a hold of his attention and his heart. He now only lives his life as a servant entrusted with the business of his master. We get a glimpse into Paul's personal convictions on his faith and relationship with Jesus here in these verses. His personal convictions about his own faith and relationship with Jesus. Even though he wanted to be clear that Jesus had given him the same rights as his fellow apostles and the Corinthians could not throw the fact that Paul had willingly relinquished some of them back at him, he didn't necessarily feel deserving of his calling to be an apostle, nor the rights and liberties that Jesus gave along with that. His words here are a spitting image of Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus said, then Jesus told him the story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave both, canceling their debts. And then the big question is, who do you suppose loved him more after that? Obviously the one that owed him more, that owed him more money. In Paul's case, he knew he was a terrible sinner. He refers to himself elsewhere as the chief of sinners. He was responsible for tearing apart Christian families and imprisoning them. 
He was responsible for the instigating of executions of Christians. And the phrase murderous threats in Acts 9.1 may even suggest that he had every intention of killing some with his own hands. And yet Jesus did not strike him dead on the road to Damascus and condemn his soul to hell. Jesus had other plans. Instead, Jesus threw Paul off his horse, slammed him on the ground, and blinded him. That's Je- that was Jesus' other plan. Maybe some here have a similar conversion experience. Jesus himself put a stop to what Paul was doing right then and there and forced him to be humiliatingly led by those with him into Damascus and await further instructions. Talk about having your ego knocked down. For three days, Paul was so depressed at his condition. He didn't eat anything for three days. But once Jesus commissioned a believer named Ananias to place his hands on Paul, to give Paul back his eyesight, Paul knew his life could never be the same. Not only would it never be the same, but it could never be the same. He now had a new purpose. In gratitude for the new life Jesus gave to him. He was not the same person anymore. He now had eternal hope. The begging question for us then is, how grateful are we for Jesus rescuing us in whatever way he used to rescue us? How grateful are we to him for how he rescued us? How does that gratitude impact our lives? See, it's not enough to send Jesus a spiritual thank you note and be done with it. Thanks, Jesus. And never think about it again. How does our gratitude for him rescue us impact our lives on an everyday basis? Does it in any way? Does our gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us impact our life in any way? How far are we willing to go and how much are we willing to sacrifice to live that gratitude out? Paul was compelled to live out the rest of his days as a servant of Jesus. Going and doing whatever Jesus, through his spirit, led him to do. He was content to be that. That was his purpose. Out of our gratitude to Jesus for everything he's saved us from and everything he's given to us in restoration to Almighty God as our Father, in what ways do we live as servants of Jesus on an everyday basis? Do we at all? Or do we only live for ourselves, our desires, and what we want to do in any given minute of any given day? How often do we stop and ask Jesus, as his servant, what he wants us to do and what people he wants us to serve? How often do we stop whatever we're doing on an everyday basis and say, you know what, Jesus, what do you want me to do right now? I am your servant. What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to serve today? On this Independence Day weekend, let us remember that we have been bought with a price and we do not run our lives independent 
of God's plan, as much as we like to think so. We were saved from a life held in bondage by sin and bound in chains for hell. That's where we were headed. But that freedom is not a freedom to then do whatever pleases us in our humanity. No, we have been saved for a greater freedom. A freedom that means we know our eternal home is already secure. So we don't have to be held in bondage of trying to do enough good to outweigh the bad. Jesus already took our place, already paid that price for us. So we can have the freedom to live the rest of our lives out of gratitude of that in serving him. So brothers and sisters, how far are we willing to go to show our love and gratitude in serving Jesus for all that he's done for us? How far? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's personal and powerful words here. We catch a glimpse into Paul's own personal convictions about his faith. We see that he only saw himself as a servant entrusted with the work of his master. And Lord, I pray that we would all see ourselves, whether we voluntarily have followed him or not. Lord, we pray that you would, turn, you would open our eyes, you would hit the pause button, stop us in our tracks, and that we would stop and think the question, Jesus, what do you want me to do right now? How do you want me to be serving you? Who can I serve in your name? And see what doors are kicked open. See what power goes forth. See what your Holy Spirit does in somebody else's life. And may you get all the glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.